0: This week on The Sideline Experts, Mitch and I talk everything Bledisloe Rugby as the Wallabies prepare to take on the All Blacks on October 11. Hello and welcome back to our latest installment of The Sideline Experts. Today I'm joined by our usual co-host Mitch park Wilkin. And this week, if you didn't already know, it's Bledisloe Week. That's right, Test Footy is back. And there's probably no greater spectacle to kick the season off with the Bledisloe Cup. Mitch... How good is it just to be able to talk about test footy again, mate?
1: Mate, you can say it a million times and it doesn't get any better. Bledisloe Cup week, I mean, if you're rugby tragic in this country,
0: that's the pinnacle, isn't it? Oh, definitely, mate. And that's the game that everyone tunes into. It doesn't matter, you know, your background, if you're a soccer person, a rugby league person, a cricket person, everyone tunes into the Bledisloe Cup. Now, before we dive into the massive weekend ahead of rugby, what was your headline of the week?
1: Yeah, mate, it's been an interesting week with signings and whatnot. But for me, the headline would have to be talk of this Moana Pacifica side mm. not being allowed into New Zealand Super Rugby Aotearoa for next year and potentially looking to join in Australia's competition next year. So whatever that looks like, I don't know whether they're based in the Pacific or Australia. I don't know whether it even can happen. We're not sure. But the discussion
0: in and of itself is definitely something worth noting, I reckon. No, I agree. And for me, it was... The Melbourne Rebels moves in the player market, which I think are quite significant going into 2021. As we know, there's big turnovers across all the Super Rugby teams due to you know financial opportunities overseas and maybe more secure contract opportunities. But they've been able to secure young Mason and Carter Gordon from Brisbane, who are great prospects. Mason yeah. is uh, a young up-and-coming fly half, and Carter himself has really proved himself ready to play Super Rugby in 2021. So... You know, those two are big signs. We've also had Joe Powell sign on from the Brumbies, a Massive. super rugby-winning franchise, and young payer who just came back from a Mormon mission and, and has been playing in the centers for the Gold Coast Titans, and he's looked good. So he's returning to Melbourne, and uh, he'll probably be – a wing centre option for them. So I think they've done a great opportunity to fill some of those holes in their roster.
1: Oh, absolutely, mate. And I think it's worth noting too, I think it's good for Australian rugby that we're distributing some of that scrum half talent around with Joe Powell, maybe not going to get that same game time with Nick White there in Canberra. So Mm.
0: I think it's best for Australian rugby ecosystem. Now, before we dig into this weekend's big match between the Wallabies and the All Blacks, it's probably worth noting and looking at what's been happening across the globe with our Sanzar cousins. Mitch, just quickly talk us through what's happening in the world of Argentinian and South African rugby as... You know, they'll play a big part in the rugby championship in the next month.
1: Yeah, mate, it's it's definitely been an interesting one. Obviously, COVID's disrupted ordinary scenes are happening. So with Argentina, that obviously means that for the people who are playing domestically in Argentina, there's been no professional rugby. So the talk is at the moment that they'll allow and they have allowed they're going to be recalling their foreign diaspora of players, which I think makes up about 70% of them these days. So they'll be making up their squad. But mm-hmm. it looks like going forward next year in the SLAR or the Super Liga in South America, they're going to be adding another Argentinian team to go along the Los Tibos. And mm-hmm. so they'll they'll probably divide the Jaguares talent among both of those teams. So and you'd think probably that Argentinian dominance will just become clearer at a South American level with that. But probably bigger Ned is talk coming out of the Republic. Public this week so their domestic season will be kicking off on october 10 i believe and they've split it between two comps so they've got super rugby unlocked which is their seven existing franchises minus the kings who are insolvent so that yep. means you know the bulls the lions the Cheetahs, also the pumas and greekers who are some curry cup staples who have got franchise status so that'll happen and then after that points will carry over from that into a, a sort of boosted Curry Cup so that'll go through to January so it's they've divided their season into two comps I think it's interesting but the big one Ned is the fact that South Africa seem to be heading north officially next year with Pro 14 they'll be swapping the cheaters out sadly it looks like Bloemfontein will be relegated to the sidelines but all the super rugby based South African teams will be heading north with their Celtic cousins
0: yeah it's a, a big change and probably something that was uh, you know a long time coming and has been sort of talked about for 10 to 15 years we also know that South African rugby have had a little playoff game in the last week to sort of prepare those guys before they come over to quarantine. And there has been talk as mm. well that possibly some, some club sides or a Wallabies A team might be able to run round against the Argentinians to prepare them for some of the games. Yeah. Well, Mitch, we have danced around the topic a little bit uh, here already, but let's chat about the thing that everybody wants to talk about, the Bledisloe Cup. This year will be like no other, obviously. 2020 has caused major disruptions around the world and not just in rugby, but we've seen the Wallabies already go through their quarantine procedures and are now allowed back out in training prior to their game on October 11th against the All Blacks. Do you think this will have any effect on how the result plays out in the Bledisloe? No, look, I don't think
1: it'll be too huge. The the boys have had enough time together now where they've been doing some chemistry building. The quarantine was obviously not ideal, but think of the fact that Super Rugby Australia's grand final was played more recently than New Zealand's last feature game, the North-South one. So I don't think it'll be huge. I think mostly it'll come down to your generic battle of talents and, and strategy.
0: Well, a couple of things I want to touch on today is I want to touch on coaching staff, and team selection, and we'll roll into tactics. But I want to talk about the coaching stuff because it's a dawn of a new era for not just Australian rugby, as you know, we've touched on a lot throughout the podcast, but also for New Zealand rugby. Obviously, the changeover from Hanson through to Ian Foster has been a significant one, which has seen his backroom staff now made up of Scott McLeod, who was previously there in the defense coaching role. but We've now got John Plumtree with the Fords. Greg Feek, who coaches the scrum, and Brad Moir, who is the attack coach. Now, Ian Foster hasn't been a head coach for many, many years now. How will his impact on this playing group change from his predecessors and Hanson and and Henry?
1: Yeah, it's it's an interesting one, Ned, because obviously, yeah, he wouldn't have he preceded Dave Rennie himself at the Chiefs, and even then, it wasn't a spectacular record. But he's been that second man in charge de facto at Little Bucks for a while now. My take on it is I think he could, it'll be very much a continuation of much of the procedures, at least for this year. I, he's a pretty pretty orthodox sort of coach in Foster, and it was interesting to see that battle that we talked about earlier in the year between him and Razor Robertson for the gig. And my worry is maybe there won't be enough change. Obviously, with the personnel, there's obviously a lot of debutants in line for the All Blacks, but... Um, I don't think that we'll see too much. I think we're going to see the same all that respect tradition, look to, look to play to their strengths and just play intelligent footy. What about you, mate?
0: Yeah, I think there's two big changes really. John Plumtree bringing into that forwards coaching role. He's been a really great professional coach, not just in New Zealand, but around the globe for many years. And mm. he did an amazing job with the Hurricanes in building some dynamism around the way that their forwards move the ball with each other. And Dan Coles is yeah. a perfect example of that. He... He played it on the edge, you know, has a great ability, not just to run, but his passing game got really unlocked with a coach like John Plumtree. And I've also been really impressed with the work Brad Moa has done, not just in New Zealand. Again, he's had a great association with the Crusaders and his mm-hmm. work there. So his ability to really focus on his team, moving the ball fast, accurately, and intelligently, I think that really ties in, as you said, to the way that Ian Foster has sort of helped bring this team through under Hanson. So as we expect, it might just be a continuation of of what they've previously been doing. Now, I want to touch on the Wallabies now, Mitch, who have completely reformed their coaching staff. And I think it was a much-needed change, and we've spoken about this before, Michael Chica has his own style, his own way of playing the game. Now, Dave Rennie has mm. come in as the head coach with Scotty mental as the attack coach, Matt Taylor as the defense coach, and we've got Jeff Parling in to do the line-out consultancy work, and Petrus Duplessis, who's working with the scrum. How is this team different to the one that the Wallabies had prior, and what changes will we see in their attack?
1: Yeah, it's a big one. I, I would go as far as to say it's probably the best or most well-rounded coaching staff the Wallabies have had since 2003. I think that Wise Mantle and Taylor, in particular, have really hit their, that peak sort of band of coaching where they've finally made their way home after an awesome stint overseas. We saw what Wise Mantle did with that England squad. He, he, well, he coaches a very pragmatic attacking style. We saw it with England versus All Blacks in the semis at World Cup last year. Mm-hmm. Looks very much a play to the strengths. It's not necessarily the most complicated structures but it's very efficient. They don't look like we saw perhaps to, a bit too much under Chequers' regime, the Wallabies, where it was about just scoring as quickly as possible. The time to get there isn't necessarily the biggest focus for teams that have been coached under Wise' Wisemantle, but it is about playing smart when they do have the ball. So it's been pretty characteristic of many of the more pragmatic teams over the last few years. So Ireland is a good example of that. I think the big one for me though, and I don't know if it's got quite as much talk is is Chris Webb who's the general manager of the Wolves mm. and a lot of people credit um him he he was i believe general manager at the Sunwolves before and did a bit of work in Japan but he um a lot of people credit him with tightening up a lot of those rosters helping out with that player personnel management and and he he's apparently built a great rapport with the players already I've heard so I think that's big
0: yeah there's there's a lot of changes there that, that are for the good I think the one thing that we can definitely criticise the Wallabies on in previous years. Is they they play with too much depth. You know, if yeah. you're not flat and fast enough, and you're not attacking the advantage line enough, teams are too smart these days that they'll just hold off and they'll push you towards the sideline, and you're just moving the ball actually, and you're not actually making any punch or any impact. And I think you know the perfect example of that was the way Scott Wiseman. Will, Attacked New Zealand in that semi-final last year with England. They played flat. Mm. They played fast. They were sending Tuolungi straight through the middle of the field and just hitting the ad line and then playing off the top of that. And we see that a lot with mm. his sides. And I think that'll add a lot of dynamism to the way the Wallabies play. I think the other big change, Absolutely. I'm keen to see, is Jeff Parling in with the lineout work. I think yeah. that's a really big part of where the Wallabies have struggled probably in the last twelve months to to really make that a weapon you know that that's been a staple of Australian rugby in my opinion for you know in in the our best periods our lineouts were the best in the world and absolutely jeff parling has done an amazing job down at the rebels and his ability to particularly pick off teams the defensive lineout he's had a great mm-hmm. record there and his impact at lineout time will be really really important and i think the relationship between rennie and Wisemantle and taylor is a great one as well because Rennie, when he was at the Chiefs and when, when he was at Glasgow, his attacking philosophy is so similar to Scott Wise Mentals that you know there's yeah. a real buy-in between those two. Pragmatic as all hell, mate. Yeah. Absolutely. And I agree
1: wholeheartedly with your Jeff Parling comments. I think particularly if we're looking at the likes of Matt Phillip or Trevor Hosea beefing up those second row socks, that'll be massive. Because this, this is a man who was playing with them, you know, 12, 18 months ago, mm. and he's got all that playing experience with the British and Irish Lions. A lot of people forget he he played those three games on tour here in 2013. He's someone who knows how to manage personnel, connect with the players, get messages across well. So if we can get that buy-in, and obviously with Dave Rennie, as you just mentioned, everyone talks about his ability to communicate messages incredibly well. He, he strips rugby down to its bones, but he it, it doesn't have to be the jazziest, most complicated things but like with Scott Wisemantle, it's about efficiently executing them. So if we can get those little, those little tactical uh, elements of our game right, the line out, um, just because 48% of our ball comes for, of, of tries, sorry, is scored off a line out these days. So if we can get that firing, unlike probably Super Rugby AU we've seen, then that's that's a big thing because otherwise, all going to look to pick that off all day.
0: Now, Mitchell, I want to chat about team selection because there are big talking points, not just for Australian rugby, but also in New Zealand about the makeup of their 15s, particularly due to Super Rugby AU and New Zealand or Aotearoa. One of the complications that we've seen in New Zealand rugby for a long time now has been that battle for the 10 jersey. Do you think mm. between Richie Moong or Bowen and Barrett, you know, do you think there'll be a change in philosophy there between Hanson and and Foster? We we saw Mwanga, you know, get a look in, but then it was back to Bar- Barrett, who was a preferred choice. What? Where do you think they'll go this series?
1: Yeah, it's it's a fascinating one. That I because I'd say that Richie Mwang has probably had his best ever season this year. I thought his one criticism was that he didn't have that X factor of Bowden Barrett, but this year some of those touches, mate, they were. He just probed the line, particularly with some of his little grubs, were excellent. So it's a tough one, really. You've got two first fives, as they, they call them, over the ditch, who would probably make walk into any Test 15 around the mm. world. So I think it's it's largely a horses for courses, but I, I think that the orthodox style of Ian Foster might see him stick with the Mwanga at 10 and maybe play Bowden Barrett at 15, even if it's not his best position.
0: That ties into their next selection problem because – they're stacked in the outside backs, and the makeup of that group is a really interesting one, too. You know, if you've got two to three out and out fullbacks in that group with Geordie Barrett, Damian McKenzie, and Will Jordan, then they've got three mm. out and out wingers in Severi, Reese, Caleb Clark, and George Bridge. Now, if you take Bone and Barrett and you drop, drop him into that outside back group, how does the makeup of their back three actually play out? Do you see it being Sevu Reese, Bowden Barrett, and maybe Will Jordan on the wing. How will that back three shape up? Because it's going to be a red hot battle between Australia, and New Zealand, and those outside backs.
1: Oh, absolutely, mate. It's and it's messy. You're right. What whether you make that choice, I can't. I don't think any smart Test coach could leave Bowden Barrett out of their out of their starting fifteen. This man is a freak. But you're right. It causes a whole sort of problems. If I were Ian Foster and and they were going to go with that, I'd probably. You'd probably have to avoid your out and out 15s altogether from the starting side. So, Geordie Barrett and Damian McKenzie, maybe not, and then instead play. I'm a big fan of George Bridge, so I'd probably pop him on one wing and Sevi Reese on the other.
0: It's, it's going to be an interesting uh, makeup, and the, it's going to be really similar in their loose forwards combination, too. We know Sam Kane and Artie Savia will be in that back row, most mm. likely with Sam Kane at seven and Artie Savia at six or eight. But then it's a battle of who fills that other role. Is it Shannon Vrizel playing six? Is it Hoskins Satutu at eight? You know, how do you form that loose forward trio that's really going to have to try compete with what will be a strong Australian back row too?
1: Oh, Absolutely, and I think this could potentially be the contest of the weekend. The form that those Aussie back rowers are hitting at the moment is phenomenal. And then likewise, some of those potential debutants. If Hoskins Satutu gets in there, which I'd be fairly confident he's in line for a debut this weekend. I we spoke about him at length during the Super Rugby season. The man is dynamic. He mm. offers such a complimentary game to someone like Ardi Savi. I mean, could you imagine yeah. trying to defend the one-two both of punch? Those there, boys? It would be amazing. Oh. Lethal, lethal. I think he's a man. I think Artie is a lock in. I'd be fairly confident Hoskins to Tutu. And I think that, yeah, the six jumper will be the the one that's probably most up in air because obviously Akira Yuani, if Foster's going to a bit more of a settled side, but Shannon Frazel, great season he's had. So. That's oh, a tough one. Who would you go with here, mate?
0: No, I, th- I think I'd leave my back row combination as Savia, Kane, and Satutu, you know, j- as we spoke yeah. about. He had such great impact in the Super Rugby Aotearoa and even his peers, you know, Harry Wilson made comments to the media late last week saying that he's, Probably, if not the best number eight in the world right now, he is really right up there with terms of quality, mm. physicality, ability to move laterally. You know, mm. some of these number eights at the moment can be one dimensional. He's got multiple facets of his game. So I think I'd go with him and maybe a Shannon Frizzell on the bench and, and move Severe to eight at, at some stage yeah. or later down the I line. I tend to but. agree, mate. I tend to
1: agree. I think I think it's unavoidable that selections to 2-2. He has the same outcomes as a player the size of Billy Vunapola, but he's probably 15 kilos lighter. Yeah, exactly.
0: Now, for Australia, there's selection issues all around the park as well. But what mm. I would say, they're good issues to have. It's not like in previous years that it kind of felt like we were looking for players to fill these roles. It feels like we have the players. It's about finding those perfect combinations. And one of the combinations that is going to be really important to fill is that halves combination. So we know McDermott and O'Connor played so influentially for the Reds throughout the season. We also have Nick White in that halfback role. And in the 10 jumpers, we also have Noel Alesio and Matt Tamua, who's put his hand up to be included in that playmaking role. How would you fill that nine and 10 space? And will the impact of the bench be really influential here? I know that, you know, sometimes... Coaches like Nick White to be the finisher because he's cool, can kind of collected. Whereas some other coaches really enjoy having, you know, a Tate McDermott or a Jake Gordon style mm. of halfback who comes off the bench and adds that punch. Which way do you think the Wallabies will go with this one?
1: I think whatever way it is, I don't think it's necessarily going to characterize Rennie's tenure as Wallabies coach. I think that this one might be that game where it's a bit like, oh, well, it's our first Test match under this new regime. We want to ensure a safe game manager. And I think the last 15 minutes of this game, I think it's going to be a close one for the record, but I think the last 15 is where that energy is going to be d- demanded. And and up until that, obviously, a team like the All-Bucks, you can't let them run away with it. So I, I believe that we're looking at a Nick White starting for his game management. That's what he was most sought after at Exeter for his stint. He's just returned from pretty much single-handedly managed his team into two consecutive Prem finals. Um, I think that's lock in I think Tate coming off the bench with that energy and we've seen how dynamic he has been when he has come off for uh, come on for Scott Malalua during the season that's just gone so I think I'd be fairly confident of that at least for this weekend and at 10 I'd be playing James O'Connor I'd, I yeah. I know that we weirdly when they announced it they were saying oh Tamua ten, O'Connor 12 selection but I think that that square shoulders to the line which is offered by O'Connor opens up More optimally, your ability to play your blindside winger Mm -hmm. and your fullback into the game. And particularly if you play someone like Tamua outside him at 12, that probing grubber, which he offers so well, is so handy when you've got that square shoulder to the line 10 like O'Connor. Lalesio, as you mentioned, and brilliant form and he's really put his hand up in that Super Rugby AU final. So whether he comes off the bench or Will Harrison, I don't know. But yeah, what do you make of this one,
0: Ned? Look, the interesting thing was a couple of ex-Chiefs players came out last week and said, "Look, look at the combinations that halfback he had when he was at the Chiefs. He had Cobalo and Pulu, and they're both mm. running running halves. So, you know, yeah. there was a there was a query there. Maybe it, it's McDermott and Gordon that gets the gigs. But as you said, I think maybe a little bit of stability at the start. I think you have White there with O'Connor, and you have mm. Tamora at twelve. I th- I've always thought." Matt Tamu is a 12. Not that he's a Sorry. bad 10, but I think yeah, he's a better 12 because he, he offers you a second playmaking option without losing the physicalities of a, of a regular 12. He's a strong tackler. Yes. He carries the ball hard and has a great pass selection. And I think sometimes we get lost in this combination of, oh, but he's a great passer, so he needs to be at 10. Well, he has all I those agree. other aspects. So let him let him stay at 12 and it just gives you dual threats. And I think that's going to be really yeah. important for the Wallabies having O'Connor at 10, Tamora at 12, and then running threats in White and McDermott off the bench. So that's he's, who I'd go he's for. He's a
1: good check and balance as well for when the line starts to get a bit fatigued and drifts a bit. He's a very straight playing for uh Yeah, he's happy to, uh, happy to just
0: carry that ball back at the angle too, yeah.
1: which is good to see. Yeah, think. he'll take the line on. If, he, if the pass isn't on, he'll take the line on, and he tends to do a good job of making those post-contact meters. So he's a safe option if in doubt, the line's a bit stagnant and they can make some easy meters and set for the next play.
0: Now, we spoke about the loose forward trio for the All Blacks. Now, let's talk about the back row for the Wallabies. We know Hooper's going to be locked in at seven, but it's anyone's guess Mm. who fills those six and eight roles. Pete Sarmu starred for the Brumbies all season. Harry Wilson starred for the Reds. Is that the combination you go for, or Are you going for maybe an extra a Fetcher and a Liam Wright, or you know something else in some physicality mm-hmm. with a Valentini? Who's your pick for that back row spots? Yeah, it's
1: it's an interesting one, Ned, and I, it was one of those ones we had a consensus on earlier in the season. I would start, and I think Rennie too is characterised by not pulling a checker and that he doesn't really pick players outside the optimum position. So I don't think we're going to see someone like Mick Wright coming in at six, who's, you know, more of a seven. I think that it'll be Pete Samu six, Hooper seven, and uh, Harry Wilson at eight. I think, too, what puts this in good stead is, if I, my memory serves me correctly, Pete Samu ended the Super Rugby AU season with the second most pilfers at the breakdown of any back row, which he, I think it's something that he probably his biggest area improvement this year. So if you can get him and Hooper as well, let's not forget, he, he did re- probably his best season as a breakdown artist this year so we can get those two going well and then you've got the likes of ha- harry wilson who we all know dynamic competitive and looking to just get possession whenever he can i think that's one area where i believe australia will have an edge on new zealand honestly not to say that new zealand aren't excellent but i think australia are more balanced in that sense
0: yeah i think if they go with that combination I- I- i'm in agreement with you i think pe- people underestimate how good pete summer is he He's a really great link player between your edges and your middles. And I, and I think we touched on this. Well, I definitely did last week in some of the video work that we've prepared for the sideline yeah. experts followers, just looking at the ability to set shapes on both sides of the ball, even when you're not using it. And Pete Samu is, is perfect at that. He's got a great passing game for a forward. And as you said, he brings all those, those skills of everyone's favorite back rowers. So I would definitely have him, <laughs> him there. Now, the other position that is really up for grabs that I want to talk about to finish off is fullback. There's a lot of consensus that um, maybe we need to go with, you know, a Jack Maddox or a Tom Banks with a lot of energy, a lot of pace. But I wouldn't rule out Dane Haylett-Petty. I think he's a solid competitor. He's great under the high ball. And that's something that New Zealand have shown in the last two to three years is that they really love to put that ball 20 to 30 meters away from the defensive line. A nice, high, contestable kick. So your work on the high ball has to be so good, doesn't it, Mitchy?
1: Mm. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And particularly when you're at Wellington at the cake Tim, where you're on you're on the harbour, they're swirling winds. It's renowned for, I think, kicking is going to be a massive play. So I wouldn't be surprised if DHP makes the 15 uh, jumper. The interesting thing, for, like a commentary I'd offer on this, Ned, is I think this our back three is a bit like New Zealand's 10-15. I think whoever you pick at wing will dictate who's played at 15. Are we going to have those two dynamic out-and-out wingers in Korobidi and someone maybe like Dalgunu, who, I mean, his form's mm. has been seriously this incredible? Or Because if you're going to do that, you're probably going to opt for someone like DHP who offers that safe high ball reception option and also that solid kick. But whether we go for someone who's a bit less conventional 11, who looks to find the ball at all points of the field, like a Tom Wright, maybe in that case they'd opt for someone who's a bit more dynamic, offers a bit more pace. And particularly if O'Connor makes that 10 jumper, you know, the square shoulders, as we talked about before, opening up those deep running options, someone like the Jack Maddox running off those, you know, a quick pop and hit the line at pace. Yeah, I think that's going to be very much dependent on who's at 11 and 14 and even 10.
0: Yeah, for me... I still think Tom Wright maybe can be eased in and play him in that twenty three jersey. In you know the electric pace and ability of Corabidi and Dan Goone. we we need players that scare the All Blacks. Who, who yeah. they and they do their video review and they go, we need to watch out for these threats because if we don't, they will put twenty points on us. And we haven't had players like that in the past from both edges. Usually for the yeah. Wallabies, it's like, oh, if we've got. Corabidi on one, we'll go with, you know, Reese Hodge on the other, someone who's safe. Whereas I mm. think we need dual threats, both sides of the field. Let's go at him, Let's have a crack. And then you can have yeah. that Dane Halapetti who can link between those guys. He's extremely solid under the high ball. And let's not forget, he's a great tackle breaker and a great runner of the football. So yeah, that, that, that gives you threats from all around the park. And I think that's the combination I'd be going for.
1: Yeah, it it offers a good spine too when you've got, if you play the O'Connor, Tamua and DHB, you've got safe hands there. And then outside
0: them, you've got all these options to play quick little offloading balls that they just run onto at pace. Now, Mitch, let's talk about tactics. We touched on it uh, during last week with our video analysis, the importance of setting shape on both sides of the field and players being able to know their roles and have multiple touches across multiple phases, as we saw with the Reds Mm. in Salakai, Loto, Fraser McRain, and Hunter Basami being involved in multiple times and being the best players. Now, what do you think the Wallabies need to do to beat the All Blacks? Because, you know, so many teams have tried, so many teams have failed. Is there something that you can see in that All Blacks team that we can get up over? Mate, I, I agree. It's, it's it's crucial,
1: this space. And I think the big point that the Wallabies have got the personnel for now, and also where I think the All Blacks have probably been one of their few weaknesses, is their defence around the ruck. I think having those probing nines, I think to someone like Tate McDermott, whether he's starting on the bench, his ability to make those defenders second guess around the ruck, but also catch them off guard when they're not, that's massive. That potential to allow the Wallabies to get some easy points. But I also think the other thing is the All Blacks, I believe, will look to target the Wallabies' line-out. They will have seen Super Rugby mm. The attacking lineouts were often quite below par. So whether there's any legitimacy to that under Jeff Parling as the line-out coach, I'm not sure. But I think the Wallabies are going to have to be sharp in this space. I think Matt Phillips got a huge role to play if he starts seeing as Jeff Parling credited him with their effective line-out against the Highlanders earlier this year at Force of Bar. If that's not tip-top shape, then, well, there's 48% of attacking opportunities potentially dead because that's where the points are scored these days. So that and being crafty around the ruck, I think, are my big things. Also, you look at the fact that Dave Rennie coach sides, they look to play a dual line-depth system. Where the points will come is from, as we discussed earlier, that flat line. But I wouldn't be surprised to see him playing uh, a Matt Tamua in it deeper and maybe have a Patea and whoever's at 14 playing front-up flat ball to give the options and to make the All Blacks second guess a bit. But you're right, the response time that we afford the All Blacks is, is the deciding factor here, and a flat line ultimately will be critical. It just means mean we just need to be fit enough and uh, switched on enough to ensure that we don't make those short-term errors where the limited time makes us drop easy pill.
0: Now you are right. And just to expand on that, dual-line attacking theory is – the concept of having multiple options moving all the time. So you have a, you know, you might have a 10 with the ball, a fly half. He has a couple of forward runners, but he also has a couple of guys to hit out the back. And those roles of those guys is to be able to move the ball to the wider spaces. So you're not just making two to three defenders make a decision. Like a lot of play is occurring these days by playing with dual lines. You're actually trying to make seven or eight guys make defensive decisions. And when seven or eight guys have to make defensive decisions together, you can maybe pick out one or two. And and I agree, the ability to punch through the middle and punch strong with our strong, you know, we do have great ball carriers in that group. So I think that's going to be so important against the All Blacks. The other piece that mm. I really want to look at is, look, the strength in Australian rugby, I think, in the last four years has been our scrum. Our scrum is yeah. a juggernaut. We have some brilliant scrummages in our front row, but not just that our second rollers have actually really learned to scrum well and scrum effectively. And yep. if we can really focus in on that scrum, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see a scrum penalty count of, you know, three, four, five penalties to Australia. And sometimes when you have that dominance, if you can focus in on it and getting a ref's ear nice and early, there's a yellow card. And then once you get a yellow card, you know, there's 10 points. And then, all blacks are playing from behind and once they play from behind they're not used to that so yeah the scrum we need to see it as a weapon not not just oh no we're all right at it no the scrum is a weapon for australia and we need to use that as much as we can to assert our dominance early in the game i think
1: it's interesting you mentioned too that assertive scrum because i think it took sort of forwards at large if we look back to Perth, that, that magical game in Perth. Um, mm. you could pretty much see a grimace on every Ford's face. Why? Because we were winning the collisions. We were assertive. Michael Hooper was, you know, with that niggle, he was lapping it up. So if 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 we've got players like Harry Wilson, you know, those awesome bull runners who are just basically bullying the All Blacks. I think and I think we've got the personnel for the first time in a long time to properly and potentially consistently bully other teams. It's not something we say that is characterised Australian teams of old. But I think for the first time in a while, you've got the personnel to do it. So if we're not seeing in that first 20 minutes the Fords really just loving the collisions, taking it up front, um, then it might be a bit difficult. But if we can get those Salakai Lotos, the Matt Phillips, the Harry Wilsons, and the Michael Hoopers just looking for the collision, really, really taking it to them up front, up the middle, then yeah, it's game on.
0: And Mitch, what's your tip for this one? Oh,
1: this is a tough one, Ned. I, it's got, I think it's going to be close, and I think it's going to be last 15 minutes. Um, oh, God. Wellington, I'm going to say it'll be 16-15 score. I reckon there's going to be one point. That's my tip. Oh. To who? Oh, God. I hate to do it. I'm going to say to New Zealand. But I'm going to say, big big picture, I'm going to say drawn series, and I'm going to say that the Wallabies are going to win at Eden Park. They're, boom, there's my mic drop mum for you,
0: mate. That's huge. The head says New Zealand, the, the heart <laughs> says Australia, and look, I'm going to go at the heart. I think the Wallabies by seven, if they can get out to an early lead, I think they can really push the All Blacks and, and force them to make uncharacteristic errors that we don't usually associate with them. Look, that's, that's all we have trip, time mate. for here <laughs> on the Sideline Experts. We'll catch you next week as we go through the Wallabies' victory, hopefully, against the All Blacks. Touch wood. Holy tomorrow. Um, yeah, good. Bloody, uh, you beauty.